Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Benjamin Dykes about his new translation of the astrological texts of the 4th century astrologer Firmicus Maternus. Uh, so hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to have you. This is I actually just recorded my 400th episode yesterday, and it reminded me that you were actually my first guest on the Astrology <laughs> Podcast on episode two way back in 2012. Wow, that was that was long ago. Yeah, I think we were we were I was interviewing you about a much earlier book. I think it was Choices and Inceptions, your book on electional astrology. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Well, speaking of like big um huge feats of accomplishment, like you have just translated what I believe it's often referred to as like the longest astrological text that survives from antiquity and I think there's some debate about whether like Valens is longer or whether Firmicus is longer, but in terms of delineation material length, it seems like this is probably the longest surviving astrological text from ancient times, or at least from probably prior to the medieval period, I would think. Yeah, and it's, I mean, as for completeness, it's hard to beat too. I mean, there's, as well as we'll talk about today, there's lots of special features to it. Um, and by his name dropping, we're also, we also know that we're getting some of the texts from the original founders, maybe as far back as um, Nechepso Pedasiris. Right. So here is the book, uh, Julius Firmicus Maternus, Methesis, translated by Benjamin Dykes, and just came out about a month ago. When did you start working on this translation? It's been, I was I was encouraging you to do this one for years to tackle this, because I thought it could, it could use a new translation. But do you know when you actually started? No, I don't. It was maybe four years ago, and I felt bad because I, <laughs> you wanted me to, you wanted me to work on it, and at that time I was finishing my course, and I just, I, I just couldn't spare the time, but um, I knew that I wanted to, and as I started working on it more and more, I got more excited. So this took up a lot more of my time in the last year. Got it. Okay, and. There were two prior translations of Firmicus Maternus, one by Jean Rice Bram in the 1970s, and then another about a decade ago by James Holden that was published, I think, in 2011 or so. Um, what was the motivation, or or why did we need a third translation of Firmicus Maternus? And what, um, yeah, what does this offer to to the reader? Well, there were a few things that had bothered me for a long time. And one and some of them were a cosmetic or very obvious, in my opinion, flaws in the earlier versions. And one of the simple one is none of them had a complete table of contents. Um, so the book has all sorts of untitled chapters, but it's very well organized if you understand the book. So students will pick this up, have all these untitled chapters not a complete table of contents, not even a good index. And so um, so that was one thing that I had always found very frustrating. It's also why I had undervalued it for many years, because mm -hmm. I was frustrated not understanding how this book was arranged. Um, then uh, another one is more, well, it's, it makes it more student-friendly, and that is... Um, Firmicus has all of these interesting chart combinations he talks about, um, but there's no pictures. Mm -hmm. And as astrologers, we like pictures. <laughs> right. There's no so, diagrams. 
Right. So I added um, over a hundred um, chart diagrams and tables to help students see visually some very detailed delineations that he goes through. So the, on the surface, that's some of it. Um, for other things, I didn't like how it was translated. I didn't think it was accurately translated. Yeah, and I, th I think that's huge. And that was one of my motivations for encouraging you is we had that first translation by Bram in the 70s, but then it turns out that they um, omitted a, a lot of sections. Yeah. Like when Firmicus was going on and on in delineations, they would sometimes just leave large sections out, right? Yep, he, they would leave sections out. So the so first of all, it was just incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Holden's, um, and I have great respect for Holden, but in Holden's version, he would sometimes write down words that, um, key terms that he thought Firmicus meant. So for example, Firmicus might write the word place, like the 12 places, but Holden would write 12 houses. And those are technical terms that can lead to um, controversy. So, right. And Holden was like, because Holden worked on that on his own starting in the 1950s, yeah. slowly all the way until it was published eventually in 2010, 2011 or 2010 by the AFA. But he, he was a modern astrologer and he was kind of off doing his own thing for many decades as a historian of astrology and doing all this amazing work and research and translations mm -hmm. in Greek and Latin that he just circulated privately for many years. But he didn't um he wasn't as engaged in some of the dialogues that started happening especially in the late 80s and 1990s and 2000s about the revival of hellenistic and, and medieval astrology and some of the terminological changes that were taking place so that his translation he tended to just opt for straight 20th century translation conventions but sometimes those were very out of place when he was applying it to the text of a, a fourth century astrologer yeah, and so um, so he had his reasons for doing that, but but you know, looking at all of overall all of these uh, problems that I felt there were, I wanted to make a very careful, accurate translation um, with numbered sentences. <laughs> the old version had numbered paragraphs, which made it hard to find things because mm -hmm. Firmicus's language is sometimes well, it is it is quirky, um, and. Another thing that I found is that Firmicus sometimes uses wordplay. He was a lawyer, and so he loved speech, and in a way, it's almost as though he loved the sound of his own speech. Sometimes he, in his sentences, he just said too much or more than he needed to. But he does wordplay, which sometimes illuminates or adds an extra dimension to things that he's talking about so um yeah and that was why that was why i wanted you to translate it is because i knew you would do a much more careful job with the subtleties and the nuances of the language and some of the philosophical and other underlying things that i felt like while while the previous translations picked up on in in different ways um i think you were successful in really drawing out some of the underlying things that firmicus was trying to convey with his language in a way that was much more careful and, and nuanced i think well, thanks, and and thanks for mentioning the philosophy too, because in book one of the of the Mathesis is where he's defending astrology, 
And I had always skimmed over this in the, looking at previous versions. I thought it seemed probably the, the least interesting part. But it so happens that recently I've been doing a lot of reading about the Roman Republic and, and its downfall. And in book one, he has a lot of examples from the Roman Republic when he's talking about things like fate and fortune and how astrology fits into his worldview. And so as I, as I was forced to translate it, I realized there was a lot of philosophically interesting things that he was saying um, about fate and fortune and, and uh, the divine mind. And, and it, 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 it suddenly made the book a lot more uh, interesting, uh, it, just in that part, um, right. than I thought before. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to do a whole philosophical. Let's talk about the philosophy of Firmicus. Let's do some quick stuff and get some of the basics out of the way Yeah. Um, so about his biography and about the dating and different things that are debated like that. So first off, who was Firmicus Maternus? So he was a, he was a, a lawyer originally who lived in the earlier part of the fourth century. So, and there's actually some um, debates about his, his dating and his time frame. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm following the standard time frame because I I understand the arguments about it. Um, I'm uh, not trying to break convention on that. So he so he would have been born around the end of what was called the third century crisis in the two hundreds. Um, in the two hundreds, the there was a great crisis in the Roman Empire. It actually broke up into three parts at one time. Um, there was at least 27 or so um, uh, generals who claimed to be emperors. It Runaway inflation, it was a mess. And then Diocletian and then Constantine came along and they set things back in order. So he is writing, he was of a senatorial class, born and raised in Italy, it seems he wasn't an actual senator, but he was from an illustrious family, mm. born and raised in Sicily. And the book is dedicated to a friend of his, a very powerful, well-connected friend, who, when they, um, he was, Firmicus was meeting, uh, visiting this friend once, and they started talking about nature and the stars and astrology. And Firmicus, promised that he would translate a whole bunch of old books from Greek for his friend. And this is the result. And he seems to have written it. Um, the, the, the latest probably that he could have written it is 337 AD, because that's when Constantine died. He refers several times in the book to Constantine still being alive. So. Um, right. And with Mavordius, it's like, Firmicus gives this um, story about traveling and being through like a winter storm or something and being mm -hmm. in bad shape physically and health wise. And that Mavordius like nursed him back to health. And then at some point Mavordius shared this story with him that sounds like an ash that he had like interests in astronomy and maybe in like the planetary spheres or mm -hmm. some level of astrology. Um, but then Firmicus says that he like impetuously like offered to write a big you know, textbook on astrology for him. 
And since what Firmicus ended up doing was translating a lot of texts from Greek into Latin, I wonder if that's mm -hmm. not because Firmicus had that training in Greek, so therefore he was acting as like a translator for his friend in some ways um, of, of this the, these texts, basically. I think so. And he mentions in the book that he's already written two other books on astrology, on, on specific topics. We don't know anything about them besides the titles. One of them is on the length of life. But um, he must have had a library of these Greek books that he had used himself. And so he was translating them and putting them in order um, for his friend Mavordius. Right. And so... You know that's interesting in of itself, and and that his previous um, career up to that point had been a lawyer and like like a public defender in some sense, or analogous to like a pu public defender in a way today. Um, but he says at one point in one of the later books that he gave that up, and that then gave him more time to do astrology or to write this this compilation for Mavordius. Yeah, so we don't know if he was, you know, did he retire early and he was in his fifties at this time or. Was he maybe in his seventies? We're not we're not sure exactly, but yeah, he he um, he retired from the law. He said he couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, the whole purpose was to get money out of people, and um, and so, in a way, uh, retiring and studying astrology was a way of repairing and improving his soul. And he takes it very seriously that if you study astrology and have the right attitude you are improving your soul because you are coming more into an agreement with the divine mind. Right. So, and with Mavordius, he keeps calling him a friend, but it's not clear if he's like a friend or if he's a patron, because there's some undertones of like, he, of Mavordius started rising in rank and then told Firmicus, hey, he reminded Firmicus at one point yeah. that he'd made a promise <laughs> to do this book. And so Firmicus describes it as if he was kind of like under the gun to like start working on this. And he starts working on it by the late um, 2020s or early 2030s. And he mentions an eclipse in the year 334 as ha that happened recently. Mm -hmm. um, but then in book one, he dedicates it to uh, Constantine, Constantine the first, um, as if he's still alive. But since Constantine died in in uh, three thirty seven, we know that it must have he must have been writing that or finishing that before then. Yeah, so it was maybe three thirty four to three thirty seven that he was writing this, and yeah, yeah, he he mentioned several times about how he didn't know if his weak and trembling ability he uses the uh, the word for trembling like his shaky ability would be able to fulfill this task for his friend Mavordius. there was clearly a difference in rank there um but we're not sure exactly what um and maybe that's all that it, that you need to know to explain his sort of subservient <laughs> bowing and scraping every time when he seems to apologize for not being faster yeah well that i mean that's definitely the political thing because that that was prominent that mavordius was about to become consul but also which is like one of the highest positions that somebody can get in roman society um but then also i was listening to um another podcast uh the schwepp podcast in an interview with claire a scholar named claire hall and she mentioned that mavordius that that name actually means Mars or is connected to the Roman word for Mars. Had you heard that? Um, Mawars. That sounds really familiar. 
Yeah. It so sounds wonder, familiar. That could be. I wonder about that both because it then um, there's a lot of sort of like paganism or connection with paganism and something we'll get up when you get to Firmicus's philosophy and religion about um, Firmicus potentially still being a pagan or uh, during writing of the writing of the Mathesis in the 330s. But then later in his life, about a decade later, we know that he wrote uh, another work where it seems like he had converted to Christianity and he wrote this really um, uh, harsh attack on the pagan uh, mystery religions, basically, where it seems like he converted to Christianity then became very militant about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so um, it, it seems that his, should we, should we just talk about that now? Like what? Um, I guess we can close up the last section by just saying his friend Mavordius is documented in other history mm. uh, in that. So consul, is there like an analogy for that in terms of the the level that Mavordius got to? I mean, there's no higher position necessarily besides, I mean. Uh, apart, apart from the emperor, the two highest offices were always consul. And there were always two of them. But um, at the same time, they were one year positions. But some of that changed over time. Um, they didn't have the same powers that they had once you were in the empire uh, that they had when when it was the Republic. Right. So what's interesting about that is Firmicus dedicated to his friend probably by 337 because he says that Mavordius is about to become consul, that he's designated for that. But then um, Constantine, the emperor, died in 337 and there was a bunch of political turmoil. And it seems like or it seems the majority of scholars think then that um Firmicus's friend Mavordius didn't become consul until later because in the documented history, he's not um, consul until I think like the 50s or the 350s right. or something like that, right? Yeah. So one of the ideas is to make sense of the chronology is that maybe, yeah, he was promised the consulship. Constantine died. His appointment was put on hold until later. Okay. Um, and something that was interesting, because that may have just been due to the political turmoil of the time. Um, but I was also reading, um, I was watching a lecture on Firmicus today um, about, I was watching another uh, lecture on Firmicus by Ivana Lemkul that's on YouTube. And she mentioned another scholar named Noel Lensky, who speculated that perhaps, um, you know, even Firmicus dedicating this astrological text to Mavordius could have been part of what caused some like political turmoil for him or could have gotten things um, delayed when all of a sudden Constantine's son takes over. Because one of the things that's interesting mm. in this time period mm. is that it's really, you know, Constantine, the laws start changing really rapidly in the mid fourth century against astrology, because the other thing that's going on in the background of all of this is that Christianity is becoming adopted as like the state religion of the Roman Empire. And one of the things that starts to turn is that some of the, the laws um, start to turn against astrology during the course of the middle of the century, essentially. Yeah, con well, Constantine legalized Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't become the official religion until later. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's possible. It's kind of a confusing period. Uh, we know that other emperors were using astrology. So um, hard, to, hard to say. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how this how how that might affect the the issue of the chronology, but he definitely in several parts of the book 
knows that Constantine is still alive. So that puts it no later than 337 for some of the for some of that book. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So um so that's a relevant thing. And then the other thing is just Firmicus's conversion to Christianity and his other book, which is titled The Error of the Profane Religions, which was written around 346 or so. That gives us around, let's say, a decade. If if the Mathesis was being written or completed by 337, and this other work is written by 346 um, mm -hmm. or there thereabouts, we're talking about a ten year period. And um, you know, one of the questions that's sometimes still debated occasionally, I think most scholars do think that Firmicus did have a conversion to Christianity, that he was a, a pagan, but then. Um, for whatever reason, converted to Christianity later on, and then wrote this attack on the pagan mystery religions, um, which which I think is the case. And there's different reasons for that. But what are what are some of the distinctions between the two, or why why do we think that he converted to Christianity? I think is a good question. Well, in the Mathesis, the earlier book, um, he is he, first of all he's a very pious man. So he's not joking when it comes to religion. So this is a very serious topic for him. Yeah, like he has a lot of religious and especially like moralizing undertones all throughout the astrological work already at that period, even even as a pagan. Yeah, stuff that you don't see in other authors. Um, it, I mean, it's he's so pious. Um, it it really stands out against most other. Um, uh, maybe all of the other astro astrological material I've ever translated. In mm -hmm. fact, he even composes some hymns. So there's religious hymns in the in the pagan style for the work. He's calling upon uh, God, and um, but when you but when you look at um, what is he actually talking about? What's his metaphysics like? What does he think ultimate reality is? What he think? What does he think God is? It comes across as a kind of generic, um, somewhat eclectic middle Platonism with some Stoicism thrown in. So that, um, he, like the Platonists, he's, he seems to have, believe in a number of layers of reality, which, it, which the, the divine power flows down through each layer. Uh, so from up from a divine mind to what seems to be the uh, like a, a platonic world soul, and then the the uh, and then the material world with the planets, and then and then so on. Um, so that is all um, neoplatonic, or or maybe you could say middle platonic. He was living in the time of neoplatonism. He was living after um, Plotinus. Yeah, well, he's also he's not just living after that. He's like very acutely aware of the of Plotinus's school, and he mentions Plotinus in in book one, not very favorably. I think actually partially, perhaps due to Plotinus's critique of astrology, which Firmicus viewed as an attack. Um, yeah, but he's also he's also aware of Porphyry, who he mentions very favorably in the astrological text and refers to him as our Porphyry. Uh, and there's some questions about why he refers to him that familiarly, but then later in the Christian work, like suddenly his views on Porphyry have changed, and he attacks Porphyry really viciously, which is one of the major reasons that I personally think that he did have a conversion 
but at least in the astrological text, his familiarity with the Neoplatonists does sort of put him in that milieu of of them, which would have just been a few decades before the Mathesis. Yeah, and and but and and notice that even though he's familiar with these Neoplatonists, he doesn't speak like a philosopher. No, he speaks like a religious person. So he's clearly into the religious side of things in that in that tradition. And that, but there's another a number of other things that he'll 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 um, mention that shows that there's some stoicism going on in there, like mm-hmm. the world being a uh, like a God as a creative fire, um, or, and so uh, or nature as a creative fire. So there's a, and and the determinism too. He's a universal determinism. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um or the so, ekpyrosis that he mentions at one point. Yeah. The conflagration mm-hmm. so um that would not have been strange for an educated upper class man of his day for a number of centuries that kind of um you know non what am i trying to say non-dogmatic general uh, mixture of ideas that way of looking at the world wouldn't have been surprising well, and also I wanted to mention, because you mentioned the Neoplatonism, and I sometimes also, I think of Hermeticism when I'm reading some of his texts, and I think it's sometimes very hard to distinguish between mm-hmm. what what is Neoplatonism and what is Hermeticism, Yeah, especially because one of the things that's very distinctive that he does mention is the, you know, that doctrine of the the descent and the ascent of the souls um, through the planetary spheres and that's something that both the uh, Neoplatonists and the Hermeticists shared in common. And as I was reading through your translation, I was constantly like trying to tease out, you know, where is he getting this from? But part of the thing that's tricky is that he's drawing on earlier texts from the technical Hermetica, like for example, from the uh, the, the Nechepso and Petasiris tradition or the Asclepius text which was supposed to be revealed to Asclepius by Hermes. So we have to remember when we're reading some of his philosophical digressions that he may be getting some of this from um, Hermetic texts, or at least texts that were part of that general Hermetic tradition. And you'll notice that when you read when you read the Hermetica, they are also very pious and religious and not highly technical and dogmatic. Mm. They, they aren't philosophy treatises, but they present this kind of neoplatonic or middle platonic worldview that's very spiritual it's totally compatible with astrology and if you read those you can often say wow this sounds like neoplatonism so um as well as stoicism because some uh, of those texts also have like heavy emphasis on like fate and and um what seem like even the concerns of the ethical stoics about like accepting fate to some extent and things like that mm -hmm. so i think you're right to point to that connection with the hermetica too it makes a lot of sense yeah and then the other piece though is like sometimes and this is what gets tricky is um firmicus is very aware that he's not just he's writing this for mavordius and he makes mavordius like swear an oath to try to keep these things kind of like secret or on the on the down low a little bit which is similar to what valens does um and he says it's okay if you pass it on to your children or or other people that you know you know are, are good moral people but there's this awareness right from the very first book of the Mathesis that um he wants to be careful of the authorities to a certain extent and one of the things that's funny is not just he doesn't just dedicate the book 
or, or mention invoke Constantine, but he also says at one point that you can't look at the chart of the emperor, that um, the oh, emperor yeah. is like above astrology yeah. and the emperor is, is beyond the command of the stars, but also that, um, you know, he hearkens back to some of the laws from Augustus's reign that you have to make your predictions about astrology uh, with a witness or publicly, and that there's certain things that you can't, you can't predict or talk about. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's um, very insistent that you need to live a very moral life as an astrologer. Mm. And part of that life is in public view so that you're not seen to be, um, you know, prying into state matters where you shouldn't be, that you're not looking into things that would be embarrassing if they became public. So, um, and, and he does, he does it suggests that uh, even if you wanted to ask about the emperor, it wouldn't work anyway because the emperor is beyond a chart. <laughs> right. But but then I but then ironically, like later in the book, he gives a lot, bunch of placements that will indicate like emperors and kings and things yeah. like that. So he's saying so we have to be aware when we're reading the book that he's saying that because you know the tides were starting to shift against astrology and you could get in trouble for certain things having to do with astrology, you know, increasingly the longer and longer he lived as we go through the fourth century. So the other thing that's interesting is like, sometimes I feel like he writes parts of the Mathesis in a way that are, even though he's writing things that he's drawing philosophically from like Neoplatonism or Hermeticism, there's some ways that he phrases things that would not be um, that would be almost okay that a, if a Christian was reading the book, they would be like, that kind of sounds like something that's okay, according to my theology that I might be okay with. And I think Firmicus is doing that politically because the, the tides are starting to shift and he's trying to be careful. But I think then some scholars have sometimes accidentally thought that that meant that Firmicus was already Christian, but then in doing so, they, they overlook some of the like polytheism in, in the Mathesis and things like that. Yeah, there's there's def, definite polytheistic strains in there too, and but you know if you look at the Hermetica, like I said, it's very moral, very religious, but you can't really tell whether this is a Christian writing it or some kind of sun worshiping Egyptian, because of the because of the amalgamation of God and the sun, you know, the solar uh, imagery or Plato using so, solar imagery for the good. Um, so in a way he was already in a tradition that was able to be pious and a lot of people could be part of without being too dogmatic and, or running into trouble by being right. too specific. Yeah. Yeah. But then we can see with some of his like moralizing tendencies and his interest in religious things, even though he's not a philosopher and he's not trained very highly in some of the like the intellectual schools of philosophy. He's not like a, a Plotinus or a Porphyry or anyone like that. Um, we can see how maybe he could have had a conversion 10 years later, and there could have been some things in Christianity that he was amenable to, you know, including some of the moral components. Um, and I think, you know, we see that happen all the time because I've seen, you know, the older I get, sometimes we see people over a 10 year period sometimes go through a conversion or sometimes have a change in view either in terms of their religious beliefs or in terms of their political beliefs mm -hmm. or different things like that like that happens and that's not 
surprising that we would find an astrologer having something like that happen over the course of their their lifetime. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a kind of instantaneous, you know, on the road to Damascus sort of moment. Mm-hmm. And and uh, maybe maybe he might not have thought that he had changed that much. Um, so we we know from the later book he's he seems absolutely to be a Christian. He's constantly quoting the Bible. Never mentions astrology, right? But That's talks, a big mystery. Yeah, but talks a lot about the about the. Um, he doesn't talk about the state religion. I don't think, um, the state Roman religion. But he talks about the mystery cults a lot, and how they were basically uh, bastardized versions of other more pure symbolism and practices, and um, so you know it. There, there's enough, especially if you want to bring in something like the Hermetica, there are enough ways that you can find overlaps in the ways that the philosophers and the Hermeticists spoke that you could see how a shift to Christianity would be possible. And one of them is in one of his hymns, when he talks about God being a father and a son to himself. Now, the fatherhood metaphor was used by other philosophers to talk about how one kind of reality could be emanate from another kind of reality. So that metaphor had been used by philosophers, but if he's already kind of surrounded by some Christian symbolism and that's being emphasized, maybe given a little time, little exploration, it's not a surprise. Right. I was also reading, I've read a paper um, by an academic named Dennis Quinn. It was titled, In the Names of God and His Christ, Evil Demons, Exorcism and Conversion and Firmicus Maternus. And one of his his thesis was that there's a lot of mention of demons in connection with astrology and the mythesis. And then he brings them up again in the uh, Christian polemic 10 years later, but the main thing he's talking about is the power of Christianity to sort of exercise or get rid of demons just by being a Christian and just by that view, and that that may be like a partial motivation for Firmicus to convert to Christianity to the extent that he's often associating evil demons with um, negative things that are happening to people in astrology. And therefore, if there was something that was able to rid you of that, it could rid you of some of the you know, life's woes in some sense, so that there could be other like justifications for for his conversion a little bit. Yeah, daimons were were consi- generally considered a lower type of spirit, but different schools of thought had different ideas about: Are they all bad? Are some bad? And are some good? What do the good ones do? What do the bad ones do? And he clearly, in the Mathesis, and then in his later book, comes down on the side of daimons are bad. Right. So that so that could be another reason that he might want to ally more with the Christian side than with some other Neoplatonist who says, well, there's good diamonds too. Mm, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And and also just like I said, things were shifting politically because even though Constantine didn't was still somewhat um astrology wasn't doing too bad under Constantine d- despite 
Christianity becoming more and more acceptable. I think under Constantine's sons, that's when some of the laws against astrology really started coming into effect. And mm. so Firmicus, in not mentioning astrology in his Christian polemic, I think may have been not trying to draw attention to the fact that he had wrote mm. written this earlier um, huge textbook on that. Um, and sometimes people speculate that maybe he was going like so far over the top um, in his Christian polemic that it was because he was trying to show that he really had converted and he really was serious about this conversion to whether it be, you know, the authorities who are in power, or whether it be to his bishop or, or what have you, in order to sort of show there had been some sort of change or he had given up that old thing, even though he doesn't mention it. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, the Mathesis is a gift to a friend, so it wouldn't have been, you know, publicly, you know, sold in bookstores. I'm not sure how it how it got so many manuscript copies made, mm. but the but the book against the pagan religions or the or the the um, mystery religions was meant as a more public statement to the emperor. So um, it could be that his his translation of the Mathesis wasn't highly known maybe sure yeah and um but he he and so it might, might as well just be quiet about it <laughs> right maybe not good not to like draw attention to it um all right so for our purposes though let's focus on the mathesis itself and let's talk about some of the things in it and some of the things that are interesting um one of the things that I think was most striking to me that I understood for the first time in a better sense after reading your translation was that Firmicus is to um, astrology in Latin what William Lilly was to astrology in English in the 17th century, in the sense that with um, William Lilly, you know, he's widely hailed partially because in Europe, most textbooks on astrology up to that point during the course of the medieval period, late medieval period and Renaissance were written in Latin. And then all of a sudden, Lilly decides to write his textbook in English, which made it more accessible to an English speaking audience that didn't need to know Latin in order to read it. And in the same way, Firmicus plays some kind of similar role where he's one of the earliest authors to write a complete comprehensive textbook in Latin for a Roman audience, instead of up until that point, most of the textbooks had writ been written in Greek, and most of the textbooks Firmicus himself is drawing on is Greek. And that's like a huge turning point, like that's a huge landmark moment. And therefore, Firmicus sets a lot of standard and standards in terms of language that would be used in subsequent centuries, mm. even to this day, I think, right? The some some of the language, yes. Although we have to remember that a lot of the Latin books had been translated from the Arabic, so right. they they were done separately. But yeah, he is very conscious and says several times, "I am doing this for the Romans for the first time," and uh, and it is a great contribution to Latin literature. He's very clear about this, and and what's sad is that he's translated all of this material from 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 the oldest hellenistic sources and that they're almost all sources that are now just gone right uh, uh or only exist in other in other versions so in a certain way we could say he rescued a lot of early authors um and the sad thing is that he doesn't tell us always throughout the book who he's quoting 
but um, but we could make some good guesses. Right. So most of the book, it's so large is because most of it is copying delineation material of interpretations of planetary placements and birth charts from different earlier Greek sources that he's copying from. Um, and to bring the the Latin piece around, it brings up one of the mysteries in Firmicus, which is that it wasn't the first Latin work that we know of that survives because there was an earlier one, which was Manilius, which was written somewhere around 14 CE or AD. Um, and there's this big question about, did Firmicus know about Manilius? Did he draw on Manilius? Um, if he did, why didn't he mention him? And that's something you address and you kind of tried to investigate um, in, in your book, in your translation, in the sections that are connected with Manilius, right? Yeah, I think I think that um, Firmicus did not have a copy of Manilius. What he had was a copy of the Greek original that Manilius had been working with. Hmm. So um, other people had copies of Manilius and used it, especially when they were talking about fixed stars. Um, and and Firmicus is also using that material, but I think he's working from the earlier Greek edition. Right. So in, in book eight, he has a bunch of material on fixed stars and um, and that section, a bunch of those sections show very close parallels with what Manilius says when he's dealing with the same concepts. But so the, the question is whether he had Manilius in front of him or whether he was drawing on the Greek source. And you think that he was drawing on the same Greek source that Manilius had? Yeah. And so it could be that he thought he was doing this for the first time because he had never heard of Manilius. I mean, that's that's possible. Mm -hmm. Or he just thought it was such a marginal a marginal work that already had a Greek original that it wasn't worth mentioning. But he's he's very but but at any rate, he's very aware that in, in Latin literature. Well, I, actually, let me go back for a second. He also knows that Cicero and Julius Caesar had written little pieces on the stars. So he knows that some people have written little things, but none right. of them has, actually, has written a, a, a huge um, manual of astrology. I was just reading that section today where he mentioned Cicero and this lost work that Caesar supposedly wrote. And what was interesting is he almost, but he, he almost says basically like, but those are astronomical works um they're not about the judgment of the stars and it was interesting that he's almost drawing a distinction between astronomy and astrology there which i thought was really important because it's commonly assumed that there was just absolutely no distinction between astronomy and astrology in ancient times but i often think that that's just a linguistic issue because there wasn't a standardization about the terms astronomy and astrology and so authors would mix them up but that didn't mean that there wasn't any distinction between those two concepts in ancient times yeah and i i would say if, if anything for firmicus that distinction is really important because and and if if you watch how he talks about astrology he's always using the word decree right that astrology is about what the gods and the stars are decreeing this is a divine uh science um so measurements and watching you know rising times and that sort of thing for agriculture that's one thing but understanding what this all decrees is a much more uh splendid and um powerful and morally elevating practice right so decree and that's connected with this other 
his frequent use of the word of fate. He's constantly yeah. invoking fate and saying that astrology is the study of fate. And at one point, he also connects fate to fortune, and he seems to use fate and fortune interchangeably at one point. Um, and he also talks about um, judgments and uses this term judgment, which I thought was really interesting because we see that very commonly in the medieval period, and that eventually le leading to that distinction between, you know, um, judgments versus the other categories. Um, but some of this we're seeing in Firmicus for like the first time. Yeah, and and that word fate is important too because in Latin that word fate. Uh, the, the Latin word has to do with a divine decree. So mm -hmm. he'll he'll use the word that means decree, and then he'll use the word fate, which he and everyone then you know would have known that that word fate also has to do with divine intention and divine uh, divine decree. Yeah, you know it's cool. At one point in like what was it, book six or seven? I was reading your translation the other day. He uses decree as a synonym. For in, in the place of saying nativity, like yeah. there's some example charts where he has, says this decree and, and what he's talking about is a, is a chart, but that's, he's actually using the term in that way, which is really cool. Yeah. The chart is the decree. Yeah. So it's not just individual things that are decreed by things in the chart, you know, individual outcomes, but the, the nativity itself is the decree. Yeah. Right. The decree of, of fate basically. Mm-hmm. So another word that's really important, which actually we need to get to, it's a unique term that he uses constantly, but it's important to explain in terms of the title of the book is the mythesis. Um, and that's something that you leave untranslated both on the cover as well as throughout the book itself. Yeah, I struggled with that because uh, for many years now, I've tried really hard to, to never uh, leave these special foreign words untranslated i've always wanted to try to put them into english somehow and i didn't feel i could so mathesis um really the the root verb for this in greek just means learning and um it's it's the basis of our word mathematics so mathematician mathematical um Mathesis really just means learning, but of course there's lots of, but there's lots of types of learning. Now I thought I would do what Holden does, and he just translate this as astrology. Mm -hmm. But Firmicus also uses the word astrology. Right. <laughs> so at one, at one point he said, because he's often using it as a placeholder for astrology, but then that was a really interesting point. At one point he says. In a sentence you translated like the mathesis and astrology, which is yeah. interesting that there's maybe some distinction there. Yeah. So he might mean so it might mean that in casual conversation, if you talked about mathematicians, you'd be talking often about astrologers. Maybe common people would understand that. But he might have something special there. And I thought, well, he doesn't use it a lot, so let's just keep it like it is. And yeah. uh you know. and, and it and it ties in within the Greek tradition in that time period, in like the first and second and third century, the term um, mathematicos was often used to refer to astrology and to astrologers in particular as like mathematicians. And this is sometimes like mocked by skeptics like Sextus, Sextus Empiricus, who says the astrologers use these 
you know, high sounding names like mathematician to refer to themselves or to their science. Um, and I was reading some of the laws against astrology from the fourth century, and um, they actually use terms like um, mathematici to refer to astrologers, or they refer to astrology as mathematica, the teaching of astrology when it was banned in like 3, 370, for example. So it's like some of the Roman law codes are also using that to refer to astrology yeah. as, you know, mathematics or or what have you. Yeah. So it's, if you just thought of mathesis as being astrologers, especially insofar as they calculate, right? it would probably be fine. But because he also uses the word astrology, and I know that he's careful about certain words, I thought, I'm, I'm going to leave it the way it is. Yeah. And I'm actually doing an episode with Demetra later this week where um, Alexander Jones published a paper recently where they discovered what they think is the earliest woman uh, that's known by name who practiced astrology, which is a woman named Heliodora, who lived in the second or the third century. And um, on her gravestone, it says that she was a, a mathematica, so mm. it, it, you know, a mathematician, which they think, because of the time frame and the context, means that she was an astrologer. Mm. That was kind of kind of interesting how that all ties mm. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so that's the title. That's some of the things. Another term, and I don't know if you want to go into this, but that you did leave untranslated was the word apotelesma. Yeah, and. Um... So this is a word that it's apotelesma. The plural is apotelesmata. He he's using it. This is a, a, a Greek word, but he just transliterates it. So right. he's not he's not even translating it. Um, and it, it this happens to be the title of a number of famous books on astrology. Mm -hmm. uh, Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos. It's not actually called the Tetrabiblos. It's called Apotelismatica. So. Um, there are a number of astrologers who use this word as titles of their books, or they'll talk about these things called apotelismata. And obviously, apotelismatics is the study of apotelismata, but almost no one uses this word but astrologers, and they never define it. Mm -hmm. So it's always a question, what, what in the world does this mean? And I... I can only speak for, for, for Firmicus and how he uses the word, but I think I have an idea that is useful about what, what this all of this really means. And uh, so should I just say it? Yeah, just so you're, kind okay. of building, you're building it up a little bit here. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. Um, and apotelismatics has to do with pattern recognition. So we when we learn astrology, we learn individual things like Saturn in the first or Mars trine Venus. We learn these little things in isolation, mm -hmm. but then there are overall um, chart patterns, which if you look at several things at once, what they're telling you is that this nativity is about such and such, or this is the nativity, you know, of a powerful person. And so what apotelismatics is, and he, he keeps saying throughout the book, we're almost there. We're almost to apotelismatics. Um, it's, it is, I think, the next stage that we need to take in astrology education. And that is going beyond principles 
and rules and just picking out individual things and working on big pattern recognition. And um, so that's what he does in books six and seven. And I think that would be a great way. If, if we had that as an aim, I think it would be great for traditional astrology to add to those bodies, that body of uh, common patterns that have an overall meaning for a person's life. Right. So it's um, apotelis, apotelesma, it sometimes means end or result or outcome or, or effect. Um, and sort of like, like Schmidt had originally uh, sort of noted how Ptolemy uses it, that you have like a, a foundation or a, a katarche, a beginning, and then you look at the alignment of something then and it will tell the, you the outcome or what the result is from that that placement. And so that's why astrologers are using that. that. But what you wrote in the introduction was that Firmicus has a more complex or detailed understanding of ap apotilismata that are not just simply a single singular one-to-one -one correspondence of like singular placement and then outcome, but instead it's something more about the totality of the mixture of the planets in the chart and their placements and combinations and aspects with each other that indicates a, a total sort of like outcome description or, or what have you. Yeah. And he's explicit that it involves all of these bits. And, um, and um, uh, so for example, you might see some complex uh, combination uh, and, and he might give you a, a combination like this in the book. And then the, what the, meaning is is um, the native will be born a slave but will later be freed and be happy or something like that mm -hmm. but there's no way to point to just one or two things in the pattern it's the pattern as a whole um and once you look at it this way uh, i i thought i thought wait a minute this uh, seems real familiar i went back to dorotheus and I found in Dorotheus, that's exactly what you find. Mm -hmm. You'll find little um, lists of rules and basic principles. And then you'll suddenly get complicated descriptions of a chart configuration mm -hmm. of, the, of the sort that you would rarely see. Um, and yet this pattern is supposed to be telling you something. So this could be something that's... Um, you know, staring us in the face and could act as a kind of goal for us to go beyond simple um, uh, placement result, placement result, but do more chart synthesis. Yeah, synthesis. That's I think that's the key word is it gets to the ultimate goal of synthesis and understanding how the chart works together and how in some of those examples, it's talking about like five different placements that ultimately indicate what the the outcome is in the person's life and what their fate ended up being in something approaching like the totality of their life or something like that. If you were trying to try to summarize a person's life in the major points and just like a sentence or in, you know, indeed in a decree uh, or something like that. Yeah, because if let's suppose the Lord of the first is in the sixth, a straightforward one sentence description of that outcome could be the native will be a slave 
Right, because in the fourth century in the Roman Empire, like slavery was really common and was a, was a major part of um, right. of society. And we have charts of both um, astrologers consulting with slaves and giving indications for if they would get their freedom and different things like that. Yeah, and if you don't want to say, and nowadays it could be something similar to a kind of slavery or some sort of subjection. Anyway, what I'm saying is that simple thing, Lord of the First and the Sixth you could turn into a single sentence that is an outcome. But then you can have this complicated chart configuration that he, he also turns into a one-sentence outcome. But there's got to be a difference between the two of them. It's got to be that the, 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 the synthesis of the, of the bigger pattern has a more complicated decree that you can say more about, and there's probably more explanation that can go into that. Yeah, so this brings up something I want to talk about that is super important is one of probably the most important pieces of Firmicus is that he constantly talks about mitigations and the concept of mitigations. Mm -hmm. And while we have traces of this in other authors, it clearly exists and he's drawing on a, a pre-established pre tradition of, you know, if this placement is in the chart, it means this unless this also happens, which can counteract that or counterindicate it, or it can um, modify it for better or worse. Firmicus is constantly telling you both the rules of what certain placements mean, but then he's also saying, however, if this placement is here, it will mitigate it and make it better, or it'll make it worse. Mm -hmm. And that ties in with your what you're saying there in terms of the chart synthesis is that a major component of chart synthesis we understand from Firmicus is paying attention to mitigations and how different planets in the chart can offset things. Yeah, and I think that in, in many cases, he does that through sect. His material and treatment of sect throughout the book is amazing because mm -hmm. of uh, just because of the, the literally hundreds of of delineations that he gives where you can parse out what sect is doing in that. So you might have, he'll explain the difference, let's say, let's say you have a, a, a dire, a, a morning star Mercury, so he rises before the sun in the sixth, okay? Um, and that has one delineation, it might not be that great. But it's going to be different, he says, if it's a diurnal or, you know, depending on the sect of the chart. So if it's a, if it's a diurnal chart, it means one thing. If it's nocturnal, it means another. And so he often uses sect to show how something that looks pretty bad could actually be mitigated quite nicely. Right. And um, one of the things he he does consistently that was really interesting is treating in terms of sect, the waxing moon that's increasing in light as diurnal, whereas the waning moon that's decreasing in light is treated as nocturnal. And therefore, he changes almost every delineation of the moon being in mm -hmm. a common combination with some other planet based on whether it's waxing or waning. That and planets uh, planets in in all of the 12 places gives both night and day interpretations for all of them. So that you, if you start lining it up, you can really start to see how he, or well, really the oldest sources, were treating this central concept that we're still trying to fully understand, which is sect. What exactly does it do to a planet and to mm -hmm. a configuration? Yeah, so it, that's 
Go ahead. It's it's one of the great things about the book. Yeah, I had a, it, until I read through this again, because the first time I read Firmicus was maybe, what, 2004, 2005. So that is, wow. you know, a long time ago now. Um, you know, we're talking about 15, 18 years ago. And I forgot how much I had internalized from reading Firmicus about some of those distinctions with things like sect or um, overcoming. Another thing that he emphasizes a lot is which planet's in the superior position, which planet's in the inferior position, um, which can also become a type of mitigation. But another mitigation that he constantly refers to, because I, I originally got this from and knew about this mitigation from like Paulus Alexandrinus, um, who I guess actually is also not that far from Firmicus in terms of time periods. But the mitigation of if a planet is in the sixth house, Firmicus constantly reminds mm. you that if there's a planet in the 10th house, especially a benefic, it will mitigate the sixth house planet because of a sign-based trine basically between those planets. And that he'll he'll provide a much more positive delineation for planets in the sixth house if there are also planets in the 10th house at the same time or in the 10th whole sign house. Yeah, in fact, and and sometimes he gives you the the two delineations. Right. The one, the one if there is no planet there, and the second one if there is a planet there. So mm -hmm. he's even giving you different delineations for something as something as simple as that. He doesn't just leave it as, oh, but it'll be better <laughs> if the planet is in the tenth. Sometimes he does, but but he goes sometimes into great detail. Yeah. So <clears throat> so that's another example, though. Of a, of a mitigation, essentially, and this concept of mitigation. What's the word for mitigation in Latin? Well, they uh, they do use the verb uh, mitigare. Okay. And does that mean anything besides just, like, mitigate? Well, let me check. Okay. Is, <laughs> and, and is, because that's the term, that has to be, because Manilius, I don't think is using that word. So this has to be the earliest use of that in an astrological context. And that's, you know, the term that came, became common later on. So I was wondering if this is another term that Fermix is kind of using Ooh. or introducing for the first time in an astrological context that then becomes so standard over the past, you know, 1500 years since that time. Uh, the general meaning is to soften or calm down or alleviate or make something more tolerable. Mm, okay. That makes sense. So um, mitigation, delineations, that brings up a point. So we know that so much of Firmicus is him translating material from Greek into Latin from earlier authors, especially delineation material. But Firmicus is also expanding that material and Firmicus is very wordy and very not poet. I don't know if poetic is the right word, but he sometimes <laughs> is is very like over the top. Or how would you describe his language? Yeah, he's. Uh, I think he's showing his lawyerly background, right? And and from an age when people might listen to a speech that lasts two hours. Um. So so one of the things that's frustrating about reading him, but if you just slow down, it's it'll be okay. Um is that he can't just say something directly. He has to add in more adjectives and clauses. Right. So I think the example I give is he can't just say that some placement will show uh, that the native will die. It will show 
you know, the, the terrible, the terrible misfortune of the destruction of death. Right. <laughs> that's what Firmicus would say. Yeah. That's what he would say. And yeah. so he likes loading up his, his sentence that way. So sometimes you, it almost gets into a kind of a, a rhythm. <laughs> yeah. So that's important because on the one hand then he's expanding the material and explaining it better where you know the greek text probably was more succinct as mm. we can tell from comparisons yeah. with people like valens or anubio or or whoever when they have delineation material or dorotheus for that matter um but firmicus is expanding it he's also always taking things to like the extreme it seems like um and sometimes that means like he wants the placement to um when he talks about it to explain like the most ideal form of that placement so it's either going to be extremely good or extremely bad and there can be mitigations like somewhere in between that come from the mitigations but for the most part his default is like going 100% either way it seems like it almost sounds like courtroom drama right like he's making a speech you know about the, the other guy can't just be wrong. He has to be full of the injustice of the blah, 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 you know? Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think that's where a little bit of the lawyer is coming out and the re the rhetoric is coming out. Yeah. So this is really important because then I, guess, I think modern people have to be a little careful with some of the delineations and just understand going into it that Firmicus is a little bit over the top. He's a little bit bombastic and, um, you know, some of these placements may not be like the worst case scenario as, as worst as he gives them if you just like pick up the book and like start reading it and thinking about your own chart. Yeah. And in fact, one one way you can think about it is that um, some of his examples, in fact, some of the examples later in the book, he doesn't say who they are, but you get the feeling that they might be famous people from, let's say, the Roman Republic. Yeah. So we're often talking about people whose lives were extremes and those same placements in an ordinary person's chart might still be good, but it's not going to rise to that level. Yeah. So I was we have noticing, to be careful about that. I was noticing that there's a bunch of possible nativities that are still embedded in Firmicus of famous people that haven't been identified yet. And that's actually a really interesting project that I hope somebody picks up because mm -hmm. basically, and you note them in your text, like there's several, especially towards the end of the book, where you note that the story of this example is so highly specific that it sounds like a like it's a real person that he's describing and not a hypothetical nativity. Yeah, there was one one woman especially where whom he describes and her career is just like this could be a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have no idea who she is. And I, I, I came up with a couple of ideas that then didn't seem to work, and maybe someone will. So yeah, you, you, um, because of his rhetoric, and and maybe because of his examples, um, some of the delineations are extreme. You will learn all of the different ways that you can be eaten by wild dogs as right. a way of dying, and uh, maybe he did know a lot of people who'd been eaten by wild dogs. I, don't I mean, know. What's, what's funny, we always think about and sometimes joke about that as being like, well, that's dumb. But then occasionally, like those news stories still come up in the news every once in a while where it's like some freak, 
accident happened and like some kid or somebody got eaten by a dog or mauled by a dog or something like that. So I actually that's that is actually a really good point. Yeah. Um, and at one point he mentions uh, there's a rule about if you see this in the chart, it means the native will be a juggler. And he says, and I know this is true because I've seen it. And I thought, right. I thought, where did you get the this senatorial class guy? Where did you get the uh, nativity of a juggler? Or more, rather, where did the juggler learn his own birth time and get mm-hmm. his own nativity? So, um, yeah, that's a really important point, though, because I you know, reading your translation of Firmicus has led me to a little bit of a reappraisal and a greater appreciation for Firmicus because I always contrasted him with Valens and thought of Firmicus as more of an amateur. And I think that's still true because his primary profession, I think, was was a lawyer and then astrology was something he did out of interest or maybe on the side. And it was something he got more serious about doing, you know, after he left that career and when he had to write this text from Avordius. Um, But there are and that so much of Firmicus's material is just him copying material from earlier sources, which I took to mean that it's not like Valens, where Valens is just showing 100 example charts of his personal practice, which complements his copying of the material. But Firmicus does have like a number of digressions where he does talk about his personal, like what he's seen in practice and things that he has confirmed or or not confirmed. I noticed one note, I think from book seven last night, where it was like, he mentions a lot, or uh, I think it was a lot. And he says, oh, yeah. I'm recording this. Others have said it's good, but I haven't tried it yet. So somebody else needs to try it out and see if it works. So th- there is an element of like personal practice. And Firmicus, while he may be more of an amateur astrologer compared to somebody like Valens or, you know, Valens, who's, who's, entire life and career is dedicated to that and who has a school and is teaching students or somebody like Ptolemy, who's like this, you know, very high level scientist and philosopher um, who's treating these things in a very high intellectual level. Firmicus falls, you know, somewhere below those or in a different category, but there's still a, an element where he is a astrologer from the middle of the fourth century who's trying to wrestle with and grapple this material and is also paying attention to the charts of people around him and putting these principles into practice. Yeah, um, for, uh, Ptolemy, you can't really tell if he ever cast a chart. And the philosophical stuff in the Tetrabiblos is pretty light in book one. Uh, but you can tell in Firmicus, he takes it, the philosophy a lot more seriously and is actively involved in casting charts. Um, right. I mean, yeah, the, well, that's an important thing. The defenses of astrology, because that's a good parallel, is both Ptolemy and Firmicus open their texts with def- with a defense of astrology, where they try to respond to criticisms of astrology by earlier um, skeptics like Cicero, for example, may have been one of the people that Ptolemy was responding to in his critique of astrology because of the specific arguments that are outlined, or maybe if not Ptolemy, some of the earlier philosophers from the New Academy or um, different philosophers like that. So Firmicus, though, one of the things that's really funny that your translation draws out is Firmicus sets up the defense of astrology like it's a court case, and he's arguing as yeah. a lawyer on the side of the defense of astrology. And and your translation draws that out so much better in terms of seeing Firmicus um, use some of those skills in oratory and in legal defense that he 
um, spent so much of his life using, but bringing it here as the lawyer who's trying to defend astrology. Yeah, he, the lawyer really comes out because sometimes he'll say, he'll he'll signpost ahead of time what he's going to do. And then sometimes you might lose sense of where his argument is going. And he'll say, I know I should have talked about this yet, you know, such and such. Now let's do it here. And so um, this is a whole persuasion thing. But there is some deep philosophy that's that's going on in there. And um, I've tried to draw out when his arguments have several steps to them. I've tried to put in the footnotes where those steps are, <laughs> because he doesn't always tell you ahead of time. Right. But he does outline like he'll do he'll outline his opponent's like position first. And then at some point he'll outline the response to that. Mm -hmm. So it's he's setting it up like this, this back and forth legal defense. Yeah, and and he does some surprising things. And two things I can think of is one, he takes a common a common argument against fate. Um and it's in a way he kind of turns it on its head in an unexpected way. There's another argument about fate where some people want to say, well, certain things are fated and certain things are not. And he uses some examples to show that ultimately. Uh, no, you have to be led down his way to total fate. So right. there's there's new stuff in here that I've never seen before, and he's willing to do some daring things to make his case. Yeah, because he wants to argue for complete determinism and that everything is is fated or predetermined to occur, and that's his understanding and conceptualization then of what astrology is about and what its purpose is, is that astrology... Um, shows you a person's fate or shows you the decree of a person's fate. Um, and that's different than somebody like, for example, Ptolemy, who um, doesn't think that everything's predetermined or, or thinks that there are some things that can be changed that um, if you just let things go their natural course, then sure, like things will be determined in the way that the planets indicate it. However, if you try to offset things once you're aware um, that you can avert certain things in terms of a person's fate or maybe make them better or what have you. But that's not, Firmicus is on the full determinism sort of camp, which is, again, another reason why it's harder to view him as a Christian in this original work, because that became one of the main sticking points between astrology and Christianity is that Christian theology puts a great deal of emphasis on free will and making the choice to accept Jesus, essentially. Mm -hmm. And be saved um and the christians became very uncomfortable with the extent to which astrology was more focused on fate and predetermination and things like that it's hard in a way it's hard to say if that is a big distinction or not simply because in a few places he seems to want to say that internal moral improvement can kind of lift you a little bit out of this determined world he doesn't really say much and that could be a problem, right? But um, but but yeah, it is something that, depending how you look at it, could uh, uh, could could mean what you said. And um, um, you know, just to give an example of of what he does in the, this later argument, um, he argues against something that I'm, for the purposes of the book, calling beginning and end fate, or limited fate. And he says there's some people. 
And this is where he defines the word heimarmene. He says, there's some people who think that you're fated to come into the world at a certain time and you're fated to go out in a certain way in time, kind right. of look. Lo- Kind of like the fates cutting your cutting your um, the thread of life, you know the Greek fates, and and in you know in um, in Arabic astrology, the 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 parts of the chart that show death are called the cutters. Mm. So they've got that cutting. Okay, so at the end of the life, that's also faded. But whatever happens in the middle is up to you. Well, he starts posing a couple of scenarios of someone who dies early, someone who dies late under these circumstances. And what he ends up showing is that people's fates, their ends, are not separate from the other things they've done in life. You may die uh, comfortably in your bed, but the whole reason that you're there is because of a whole other string string of things that have all come there. And all of those are implicated in your death. Right. So you can't separate this like tiny little faded moment from everything that has created it. So kind of step by step, he shows that um, he shows that the only that if even if you accept this limited fate, you have to have the whole package. (laughs) You have to buy it all. Right. He says there's, it doesn't make sense to accept, um, that a person's de- death is predetermined and, and to not accept then that other things in the life are also predetermined. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So, and then elsewhere, he, at one point very late in the book, he gives the kind of common stoic refrain about the purpose of astrology that sounds very similar to what Valen says about like, you know, not being overjoyed in the case of uh, good things or or overly depressed in the case of bad things. And um, that was something that most of the astrologers all shared in common about the purpose of astrology being about learning the future so that you could know what you had to accept about your life and come to terms with it or adopt a greater sense of like tranquility or or what have you surrounding that. Yeah, I feel like he also added his own little unusual... Um perspective on it too the, so it the later one uh, well uh, um because i also want to mention go back to your one about resisting at some point but first i just want to establish this yeah like more... don't don't overly rejoice at the good don't overly you know feel bad at the bad but i feel like at one point he he fit in another thing that was um that um I, i'm sorry i'm i don't want to divert us but i feel no, like there, i mean I'll see if I can find it um, because that's actually something I'd like to do at some point, like another episode with you about as you and I used to talk a lot about stoicism and that was something that you spent a lot of time studying in, in college and just the connection between stoicism and astrology is something that's a little underexplored in terms of in that period that when stoicism was at its height of popularity and like the first century BCE and first century or two CE, that also happened to coincide with the period of the height of astrology. And there were some interconnections between the two. Yes. Um, uh, uh, either that the stars were making things happen, they were, or, or they, uh, 
or you might even, you could say, I suppose, that they were signs of things that were happening, but that the entire world was, the entire world is composed of the divine mind, which is a, a special kind of creative fire. And this create it's a creative and rational fire. So everything that's happening is, um, everything that's happening is part of the working out of the divine mind over time. And um, this is something that was similar to middle, some middle Platonism. If you know the Chaldean oracles, uh, the Chaldean oracles talk about how the, the God father sowed, sowed, uh, I think, I think it was sowed love heavy with the bonds of fire or sowed fire heavy with the bonds, bonds of love into mm -hmm. the universe. So um, the, this idea, this idea that the whole world is ultimately this kind of rational divine fire is a totally a stoic idea. And he, 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 um, he drops some of those exact phrases. Uh, okay. In the book. Right. Cause the idea is fate is the rational ordering principle in the universe that orders things in accordance with a divine plan mm -hmm. um, so that everything happens for, for like a reason essentially. Yeah. Yeah, he says uh, at one point, um, I think he says nature, the nature, the artisan, and then he talks about the creative fire. I did um, find the stoic part at like page 554 that, that sounds kind of stoic, if that's the one you're looking for, where he adds his own thing to it. Could, uh, could be, which is the sentence? Um, so it's the sentence uh around sentence 11 we're separating ourselves from all desires of distorted longings and then he goes into it accomplishes these things very greatly so that having despised all things which are thought to be either bad or prosperous in human affairs we may return our mind composed in natural virtue and authority uncorrupted and intact to its origin um, for when we will have learned that troubles are coming, we will despise the fear of eminent evils, which was why we said they were coming, with the courage of an upright mind, nor will we shudder at the dangers of the threatened evils. Um, and he goes on, we will not be taken by the troubles of unluckiness, nor will we rise up at the trappings of dignity when we have known the whole of what is promised for us by the pronouncing of the divine, divine decree, thus we being composed of stable reason can never be oppressed by misfortunes, nor be raised up by the joy of unluckiness. Um, it just sounds so close to that. Like, I mean, I understand he's also adding in things about the origins and things like that, like the celestial no, I, origins. Sentences 13 are, and 14 are those standard formulas that you see in people like Ptolemy and others. Right. But but and, the but the previous sentences are stoic. Because what? you're what you're doing is you're despising the cat the entire category things that most people think are good and evil. Right. Because actually they're indifferent. And then the, when he talks about courage. This is very close to one of the definitions of the Stoic virtue of courage. So he's he's such an interesting mix of uh, the normal, uh, uh, sort of a, a mainstream kind of generic 
view of things, and then he'll suddenly start dropping specifically Stoic or Platonic or whatever um, mm. things in there. Let me show that passage from Valens just for comparison. Um, so this is the famous passage from Valens. I think it's from like book five. He says, those who engage in the prediction of the future and the truth, having acquired a soul that is free and not enslaved, do not think highly of fortune and do not devote themselves to hope, nor are they afraid of death, but instead they live their lives undaunted by disturbance, by training their souls to be confident and neither rejoice excessively in the case of good, nor become depressed in the case of bad, but instead are content with whatever is present. Those who do not desire the impossible are capable of bearing that which is preordained through their own self-mastery and being estranged from all pleasure or praise, they become established as soldiers of fate. Um, and notice notice the difference there. So um, that passage, similar to, to sentences 13 and 14, mm -hmm. talks about um, do not rejoice excessively in the case of good nor become depressed in the case of bad. Right. Well, th well, that is confirming the accuracy of our normal categories, our normal moral categories. It's just saying, don't get too excited. But read now look at Firmicus in sentence 11. Having despised all things which are thought to be either bad or prosperous in human affairs. Right. That is a Stoic approach. Because you're putting into question all of our normal moral categories and and rising above them. So he's doing both in the same in the same paragraph. So it's the 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 stoic distinction is the distinction between what is preferable versus what is unpreferable. What's that category called again? It's called the indifferent. Right. Okay. It's so and and in, indifferent things are actually all around the astrology chart. So most of us would say, you know, um, having relationships is good, death is bad, uh, uh, pro you know, profession is good, illness is bad. So we can call good, bad, good, bad all over the astrology chart. Now, if you put your value into those things, you will be tossed about like a little boat throughout life, or you'll be on a roller coaster. Uh, because those things are not in your control, even though they're part of life. The standard view is saying, look, we need to not be overexcited about those good things, because they might not be as good as you think. Let's not get overly upset at the bad things, because we can maybe prepare for them. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the normal view. The Stoic view is... Those good and bad categories are false. That all of those things don't are not truly good and evil. They only have um, conditional or selective value. They might be useful or unuseful. Sometimes you go for them, sometimes you don't. But if you can emotionally attach, detach from calling those things actually good and bad, you'll be able to be calm and live what they call a smooth flow of life. But you can only do that if you despise the very categories. Despise is a pretty strong word, but, you know. Right. Don't consider either of those truly good or bad. 
So he's doing the, the, the orthodox stoic thing in sentence 11, and then he's coming down to the kind of normal, everyday advice in 13 and 14. Got it. Okay. Um, so that's really important. But then it just to circle back, there is this one like weird line in Firmicus where even though most of the text is is largely very deterministic and he falls more on the complete determinism side of the spectrum compared to even other Hellenistic astrologers like like Ptolemy, um, he does have that one reference uh about it's in book one, chapter six where he says something about resisting the decrees of the stars as well as their powers that almost implies, as long as this isn't like an interpolation or something, that perhaps his system is not completely deterministic, but it's just weird because he never goes back to that. He never returns to that, and there's sort of some mystery about what that little digression was about. My sense is, uh, let's see. Do you have a... We made okay. Um, let us humbly invoke the gods and let us render religiously the promised vows to the divine powers, so that with the divinity of our mind being strengthened, we may to some degree resist the violent decree of the stars as well as their powers. This could mean a couple of things. One is um, if you are totally in line with the divine mind, then everything is smooth for you. Nothing, you, you will never encounter anything that is contrary to what you actually need or desire. Because what you actually desire is exactly what the divine mind is doing. Mm -hmm. So you, so in a sense, you can resist them by being aligned with the divine mind. He could also mean that because of his moralism throughout the book, you will be purified of the kind of wretched desires that gets most people in trouble. Right. Because <laughs> that, that brings up a term I was really interested in your translation of and your attention to the detail, the nuances of this, which is that at one point very early in like book two, when he's talking about the houses, he gets to the 12th house and he mentions the 12th house and you translate the Latin term as um vices which i thought was very interesting although you point out um at different points that the term can sometimes also mean defects and there's this ambiguity where sometimes firmicus clearly does use that latin word to mean defects in different parts of the work but then in other times he uses it to mention vices mm -hmm. and you point you pointed out that part of the connection is that vices are defects of the mind yeah right so um things like so anger, the, the, the standard Stoic view is that anger is a mental illness. Anger is a defect of the mind. So, uh, but if you are aligned with God properly, um, well, and so, so if you feel anger, not only are you out of whack with God, but your anger is going to lead you right down those paths that your nativity is probably predicting will end up badly or won't work out. So um, that's the so the idea of aligning yourself with God, um, or what the Stoics call living in agreement, uh, or or as he's you know elevating the mind, you are healing yourself of defects like anger, mm, okay, or vices like anger. 
Do you know later in the tradition, are there other like medieval authors that continue to associate vices with the 12th house? Well, there, there are, there are, you do see uh, inklings of uh, mental, mental problems. Right. Um, they don't have a really developed idea about that and nothing like the modern notions of, a, you know, the 12th house and the unconscious and so on. There is a little bit, there's a little bit of it, I'd say. Okay. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting and something to draw attention to. Um, let's go back really quickly to Firmicus as a compiler and some of his sources. Firmicus has one of the most extensive discussions of the Thema Mundi that survives the mythical birth chart for the beginning of the cosmos, which lays out the foundation for the domicile scheme or the reason why the planets rule certain signs of the zodiac. And right at the beginning of that, he gives this kind of like hierarchy of the the early founders of Hellenistic astrology, um, and cites some people in particular who he draws on as as sources. Right? Yeah, he gives a little. Um, it's a yeah, a little bit about how the uh, how the tradition was handed down, and some hints about who was responsible for what. Mm -hmm. So this is in book three. Yeah, and book three, chapter one. Okay, so book three, chapter one, and he's getting ready to introduce at the very beginning of this book, because book two, it's like book one was largely his defense of astrology. Book two is him introducing basic principles and rulerships and just basic concepts in astrology. And then book three is when things start getting serious and he starts giving delineations, starting with introducing the Thema Mundi, and then he immediately goes into just a long book of interpretations of what it means when different planets are in each of the 12 houses. Yep, and by and by sect. Yeah, so he, yeah, then he jumps right in. So this is, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, long uh, treatment. I think it's probably the longest that we have mm -hmm. about the Thema Mundi. And then he then takes the five non-luminaries and has a little kind of a history of humanity where uh, we start with Saturn, which is people in a state of kind of crudeness and wildness and violence. And then humanity, after it develops things like religion and so on, then it becomes more orderly and good. And so he goes through all five planets uh, uh, um, with a little uh, astrological history of humans. Mm. Right. Yeah, a lot of that's really important because he mentions um, at the beginning of this treatment, like Hermes and, and then Asclepius and Nechepso and Petasiris as part of this lineage. And then it's implied that he's then drawing his treatment of the Thema Mundi from I think it, you said from the text of Nechepso and Petasirius or from Asclepius directly? Yeah, he says he says in the preface, he says, uh, it's Petasirius and Nechepso gave us the Thema Mundi. So he's directly crediting them mm -hmm. um, so that they could display and show man as being formed in the nature and likeness of the world. So... Um, and and he says that they they in turn had been following previous people like Asclepius and Anubio and and Hermes, 
So, but he's saying that Nechepsu and Petasiris are giving us the chart of the world. Right. And this could be significant because he's saying that they are giving us this. Now, the rest of book three is all about planets and the places. Something that we see in Rhetorius, chapter 57. We see it in material attributed to Anubio. And if you remember, um, and this will be new for many people, um, Stephen Hyland did an article some years ago where he doubts that this material goes back to Anubio. Some people thought Anubio wrote all this. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, I think he well proved that it didn't. Firmicus, they're all drawing on an older source. And he suggests that it's Nechepso Petasiris. Right. Well, if that's right, then book three is largely translation of, of Nechepso Petasiris, the Thamamundi and the planets in the places. Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out because Rhetorius is drawing on the same source text and they both have delineations from the same text that they're clearly drawing on. And yeah, if it's Nechepso and Petasiris or if it's if it's Asclepius, which we know there was also a text because there's some parallel in Valens um, and Firmicus when he, they both start talking about Asclepius. Um, and one of the things that Highland said that's really interesting is that he thought that there was grammatical variations in the different authors that are drawing these delineations from Nechepso and Petasiris because he thought that they may have used symbols to represent the planets or aspects and that's why different author later authors were interpreting or phrasing them differently interesting yeah um so that means that's a really important point then when we're reading firmicus is oftentimes throughout the book you cannot always be sure if firm if what we're reading is firmicus's personal views or if what we're reading is oftentimes the views of the source that he's copying at the time. And mm-hmm. so people have to be kind of careful when reading the text and when attributing things, because even though we'll cite Firmicus for different doctrines and things like that, there, there is a trickiness there because that also leads to sometimes inconsistencies or ways in which Firmicus does things differently at different parts of the book. And it's because he's compiling from a variety of different sources. Mm-hmm. And it means that, um, I mean, if this is true about about Nechepso Petasiris, We've been mainly limited to, you know, fragments of them. But right. if this is true, we've <laughs> we've had an entire portion of a huge book by them staring us in the face, which is pretty exciting because it also actually means that I mean, you you couldn't ask for a better pedigree, basically, for your astrology if you're getting it from Nechepso Petasiris. So it makes his work stand out as being um, as being uh, taken from the biggest and most important names and authorities. Right. And, and preserving delineations from one of the earliest texts in the Western astrological tradition when the, the concept of the 12 houses first started being used and they first started just doing interpretations or or reading the planets as being placed in the 12 houses and meaning things about different parts of a person's life, Firmic has then preserved some of the delineations from the very earliest text that even talked about that concept or technique. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's important. That brings up also um, in Firmicus the issue of house division and how he seems to be wrestling with this mixed tradition of house division that he's 
inheriting and reading in his sources, and it seems to lead him to using um, whole sign houses and equal houses at the same time, it seems like. Yeah, he he formally introduces equal houses. But then he also uses language which shows that in certain parts of the book, there are, he is also talking about whole signs. The, and But then remember also that he's translating from many different sources. And so in some cases, he uses like a delineation. I talk about one of them uh, in the introduction, which is not possible uh, if you're using equal houses. So just because he's using equal houses and is teaching it doesn't always mean that you'll see it everywhere because he might be taking from someone else later in the book who's doing whole signs. Sometimes he's going to combine them. And it's not obvious that he sees, like we are wrestling with this, right? This is, it could be controversial. In his mind, he might not have seen it that way. He doesn't seem to indicate that he's uh, worried, <laughs> worried about it at all. So um, he, he is using some combination, it seems, of of equal houses and whole signs. And you just right. have to be careful about making assumptions about what he's doing at any part of the book. Right. And I think you showed in your introduction how in the one example chart that Firmicus really uses of a contemporary nativity, which is the birth chart of Albinus, I think, in book two, that he has considerations where the placements are, are clearly being interpreted both by equal houses as well as whole sign. Yeah, so there's some ambiguities. There's some ambiguities there, too. So it's... um. And, and of course, this topic goes, you know, flows into many other things. It flows into predictive techniques. Um, um, so, and and in parts of the book, for example, when he's talking about planets in the places, when he's talking about the angles, he almost every time, oh, there's another thing he does, every time he will say that they are there proportionally, which means right. on the very axial degree. But when they're in any of the other places, despite the fact there's supposed to be a cusp, an equal cusp, he almost never says that they're there portionally, which would mean on the cusp. Uh, so or and he does he does similar wording when he talks about conjunctions. So um, that could mean that that um, maybe even as he was using equal divisions, he knew that the signs were also there. And so unless it was an angle, he wanted to allow it to be broadly in the sign. He doesn't explain. Yeah. I mean, it, a lot of that in book three, he's picking up from his source text, because if you read You're, the parallel yeah. passage in Rhetorius, it's like they're doing the same Thing, but I did notice, I mean, one of the things about reading your translation is one of the reasons I wanted you to translate it is I knew you'd be more careful and more attentive to the language that Firmicus is using for things like house division, um, which kind of got flattened out in some of the previous translations. And in reading your translation, I gained a greater appreciation for, in almost all things, both Firmicus is drawing this distinction between 
placements by sign versus placements by degree and using this special language of like broadly versus portionally or degree wise mm -hmm. um and he uses that across the board in um basically with aspects like he talks about like sign based versus degree based aspects he talks about sign based houses versus degree based houses and then he even does that with lots where he first introduces lots by sign which he says is broadly but then he says how to calculate them by degree which is portionally um and he almost seems very like my in reading your translation I gained a better, better appreciation for how Firmicus does want to emphasize degree based um things in all three of those areas or categories and he is he does seem to be conscious of and aware that there's a difference because he's always quick to say that he wants to emphasize the degree based or the portional side which he views as more either more precise or more powerful even and at one point he even draws a distinction between them like an interpretive distinction that i thought was really interesting later in the books yeah he's he's so he he has this this pair of terms uh portionally or which can also mean exactly and broadly it's the source of our um when we talk about aspects as being partile and platic so on the one hand he mean he's talking about like something that's broadly in a place or or in the sign versus on a specific degree but then he also uses this to describe explanations or types of teachings. So he'll say, I'm going to teach this to you broadly first, and then we'll talk about it portionally. Mm -hmm. And you're not sure, are, are you talking about that the teachings going to be more broad and then specific? Or are you telling me that the technique will be first by sign and then by degree? And so here's, uh, I think, where he is not doing himself or us any favors with this lawyerly playing with language about the broad and the specific or the broad and the portional. And um, he, he does draw the, the, I understand what you mean, I, and, and that he draws the distinction enough in certain areas that I, you can see, ah, I could interpret it this way or that way. But if we're getting into fine details about certain things like house division, um, he's he's um, putting an obstacle in his own way. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the passage. Um, should have looked up where this is. I think it's, it's later. It's when he's treating the lot of fortune. And um, at one point, it's let me i don't have the parts highlighted but he's he's talking about the lot of fortune and then looking at the lord of the lot of fortune and seeing how it's placed in the chart and he says but if there was not a single lord of the sign in which the place of fortune and the portions were um that one which has the greater power blah 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 if it was a benevolent and was found in benevolent signs or in its height or in its house and being arranged in the principal pivots of the nativity it saw the place of fortune pivotally it decrees a great and noble nativity however it will do this if at the time it was established portionally in the pivots or if it was only broadly found in these places which we said it decrees a middling nativity so that he will not be lucky beyond measure nor pressed down by the narrow straits of poverty and then he goes on and he says 
but if they both fell well, the lord of that sign in which the place of fortune is, and the lord of that portion in which the last portion was found, and were established in good signs, that is, in which they rejoice, or in which they are exalted, or in their domiciles, and they were arranged portionally in the pivots, it decrees such luckiness that he who was born thusly will be joined to emperors in every way. But if they were found in the signs of the pivots, not portionally but broadly, they decree the increasing the increases of middling luckiness. So he's actually here at least um, at one point in this sort of digression, like drawing a distinction between whole sign houses and degree-based houses, presumably equal houses, which is the only degree-based form of house division that he introduces in book two, and saying that things are the most powerful in the equal house degree-based placements portionally, but they still indicate the same thing in the whole sign house placement, but just less so, that it's less powerful in some way. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really interesting, and that could be really useful. Um, and there's other hints like that throughout the book, but it could be a useful thing for people to look into just in terms of some of these attempts today to try to reconcile um, whole sign houses and some of the different degree-based forms of house division to see if some sort of reconciliation might be possible thinking of it in terms of, of things like that. Mm -hmm. That we preserve the integrity of the signs, but we recognize that there's something that happens, but there's something that happens, especially in terms of power, where these cusps are. Mm -hmm. um, now, what something like this does might not, it won't fix the question of the astronomical midheaven, because the astronomical midheaven isn't going to match the um, the 10th equal cusp. But he or someone who wrote this passage seems to be doing something like that. Yeah. Right, because you write in the introduction that, that that's a whole other issue is that Vermicus does occasionally mention the astronomical midheaven and notes how it can fall in like houses other than the 10th house, because in equal houses or whole sign houses, the midheaven floats around the top of the chart and can fall in different houses. Right. Okay, so he's, he's aware of that issue, but he doesn't seem to fully sort of reconcile it at this stage. Or address it, you know. Um, yeah, he may be he may be in translating mode and not in commentary mode, you know. Um, hard to say. Got it. Okay. Um, all right, so let's move on. Other topics in the book. What are some other major topics that the book covers? We've talked about all the delineations of planets and houses. He also gives delineations of aspects, and we mentioned how he'll give two delineations for each aspect, especially for the squares, depending on which planets in the superior position. Yeah, another thing is in book four, which is largely devoted to the moon. Um, lots of combinations of the moon's applications and separations, not only to each planet and from each planet, but every combination of from each planet to each planet. And he does this because he says that the, the, the moon, because the moon is so extremely important uh, in the nativity, which we all know, but this is a, a, a combinations of um, lunar aspects with advice that is is really great um, that you don't that you rarely find anywhere else. 
Yeah, um, I was really struck by you drawing out how that ent the entirety of book four is focused on the moon, and it's there that we find Firmicus's treatment of the master of the nativity or the lord of the nativity, mm -hmm. the, ru the ruler of the chart. And you made a really good point that suddenly made me fully understand better why Firmicus goes with that specific method for calculating the master of the nativity. Mm -hmm. um, which I always thought was weird because this is a part of Firmicus that is weird that doesn't have documentation in other authors um, where he outlines four different methods that people use to find the overall ruler of the chart. And one of them that he gives is the one that seems like the more common method in other authors, which is that it's like you calculate the predominator and then it's like the bound lord or the domicile lord of the predominator. And that's the standard technique used in most um, traditions for the length of life treatment probably going back to Nechepso and Pedasiris, but then he introduces this other method where Firmicus says that the, the Lord of the Nativity is the sign or the planet that rules the sign that the move the moon will move into next after the natal sign of the zodiac that the moon is in in the nativity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 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 even then there are uh the, the sun and the moon are not allowed to be lords of the nativity. Mm -hmm. So if your if your natal moon is in Gemini, the rule would be uh, the Lord of the Nativity is the Lord of the next sign. But since the moon can't be it, we have to go to the next sign, Leo. But the sun can't be it, so it has to be the next one, uh, the Lord of Virgo, which would be um, uh, Mercury. So um, that explains why he. you'd think this would be this central topic that he might even put in book two. But now we see why it's embedded in book four, because it's all based on the moon. Right. The, that, makes, the moon's, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. That makes so much sense. And also there's an interesting overlap where because in that technique, he excludes the sun and moon from being lord or master of the nativity. That's also true in the other major technique for calculating it, where it's based on the bounds. And since the bounds are only mm. assigned to one of the five planets and not to the luminaries, in that system, it's sort of similar in terms of that it has to be one of the five planets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so in a, in a, with the bounds, that actually brings up something that you're you're working on something really important right now. I don't know if you wanted to mention in passing, or you don't, uh, just working in terms of that. I'll just say that um, that we are working on um, solving the riddle of the Egyptian bounds, and. Uh, I guess I don't want to say any more, but but when <laughs> when sure. when when we're done, which could be any day, based on some things we've discovered, um, we'll let you know. Okay, that sounds good. All and right. there's and there's some statements in Firmicus that have sometimes kind of made me stop and think um, when he talks about say the Thema Mundi or so. Um, or thinking about the bounds, these, you know, so. Or, or even his statement about the exaltations, which is commonly cited, where Firmicus says that the Babylonians wanted to treat the exaltations as if they were the domiciles of the planets. Mm -hmm. And so this is commonly cited to mean that the exaltations came from the Mesopotamian tradition. But um, there's some issues with that in terms of how they integrate into the rest of the system and some questions about if they integrate too closely into it if that could be true for it to have come from earlier in the tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little project that they're 
hopefully will be news on sooner rather than later. Good. Um, all right. Other other topics, um, ethics of an astrologer. I know Firmicus outlines an ethical thing, which sort of, you know, is a precursor to Lily's, um, you know, ethics for an astrologer. And it's unique because I don't, you know, I don't remember seeing this in other astrologers in the Hellenistic period. Yeah, and it's a lot of good advice about ba basically, um, it reminds me of another Stoic virtue, but it has to do with avoiding um, avoiding just blame and practicing neighborliness. So basically, you become a respectable person of your community. You have a family, have a house. Uh, you avoid certain activities that the crowd gets into. You make sure that um, you're honest to people about what you do astrologically. Um, you know, don't don't say any don't say anything that um, uh, you couldn't say publicly, but also things like um, try to help people when you're doing your delineations. Right. There's some. I want to also mention something about um, book seven. This, okay. this really, book six and seven, this really affected me a lot long ago when I was working out some of the eminence techniques and also looking at um, um, some specialty, specialty topics in uh, a prosperity that also relates to things like marriage and, and, um, and upbringing. He does, you'll notice that in a lot of the books, you know, like, you know, the Thema Mundi, the planets in the houses, uh, the applications of the moon, but you don't have a have a book devoted to marriage, <laughs> children, you know that goes topic by topic like we would expect. In these books, he starts to do it, uh, but and he does them using largely apotelismata. He doesn't start out with rules like. For marriage, look at the triplicity lords of Venus. He does it through apotelismata, but the way he does it, you can start to see the important themes come up, and you can see why they would have said, ah, this, this child might not have a good upbringing or might not survive. Oh, here are the indications of a good marriage, but he's doing it through examples, and um. It's a different take on teaching astrology than the rule-based one we normally use. And I've gotten some really good material from it. Nice. Yeah, that was a really good um, section. There, there was also, like, that takes up a lot. And that process um, of seeing those example charts, and some of them are hypothetical charts, but others are real charts that you've identified and, and put diagrams for in the text that really helps you to learn the process of doing full life delineation, essentially, instead of mm -hmm. just picking out individual pieces. Mm -hmm. Right. So that you can see, for example, there's a whole, there's a whole class of indications of a native, let's say, being low status or encountering a disaster. So there's a whole class of them. And if they're not all in order, but if you group them all together, you see, ah, they all involve both of the luminaries in the 6th and 12th and one of the malefics. Hmm. Or here's a group over here that shows they all have this theme and you can start to see the common patterns in them. So um, 
I think people should start um, looking at those patterns and start getting familiar with them um, because you won't see it in every chart, but you'll see, you'll, you'll see the kinds of things that matter. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's really cool also that you draw out through your diagrams is Firmicus sets up a spectrum and shows all the gradations in between. Like he'll show indications for some negative thing, but then he'll show here's that negative thing, but then there's a mitigation. And so it's the same thing, but it's like the person will get sick, but then they'll see a doctor and they'll be able to overcome the disease or what have you. So right. it's like, he'll give you first the indication for like illness and like death from that illness. Then he'll give you the indication for like that illness, but then recovering from it and just every shade of gray in between by just slightly um, modifying the placements and showing you what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful and super useful. Another area that Firmicus goes into a lot is the area of the lots or the so-called Arabic parts. Um, he has a huge treatment of this and he has some really interesting to think, things to say about lot interpretation and how to use those. Yeah, he has a very thorough lot interpretation method. Um, it's it starts out with the father, so he lay he he does lengthy delineations of the lot of the father, and then uses that to adapt to you know so he doesn't have to repeat himself. He adapts um, the instructions for other lots. Yeah, it's a real nice long collection of lots that also has formulas we haven't seen before or you don't see before, you know, in other sources. Right. And that, that he preserves from other sources that we've lost. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one of the things that was interesting there is he invokes the language at one point again of like broadly versus portionally or, or degree wise. But what I thought was interesting that you drew out in your translation is he does it for topics like he says that broadly speaking the son is the significator of the father but we should calculate it portionally by using the lot of the father and i thought that was super interesting and again goes back to this like conceptual distinction he keeps drawing out throughout the work of of broadly versus um portionally yeah and it's and then the broadly is what we would call a universal significator or a general significator and um, so he's saying that, yeah, that's that's true enough about the sun. But if you want to get it exact slash to the degree, because mm -hmm. <laughs> that word means both, if you want to get it exactly and to the degree in the chart, you use the lot. Right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And it also he constantly he refers to the lots as places and that's something that's very distinctive about Firmicus's language as well, which I'm starting to wonder if he's not getting that from some earlier strata of the tradition. Um, like there's been some demotic horoscopes that were discovered recently where they're using the lots to calculate the traditional places of like good spirit, bad spirit, good fortune, bad fortune, instead of being fixed signs relative to the ascendant like they are in most Greek authors, they're lots that like float around the chart and um, this has raised some interesting historical questions, but it makes me wonder if Firmicus didn't have access to some texts from earlier in the tradition that were still maintaining that concept. And that's why Firmicus is somewhat unique in referring to the lots constantly as places. Yeah, um, it, it got me wondering a long time ago when I first started reading this. Um, 
that there might have been not a, a, a foreign mission exactly, but kind of an alternate stream in astrology that did uh, lot readings. Instead of doing normal house readings, they would do lot readings. Um, and yeah. and uh, so that's possible. And, and but it, and it also brings up another point, which is that when in his in his book, he doesn't really use the lords of places. Right. He doesn't. So he doesn't start out and say, "Now let us look at the topic of money and the second house and its lord." That's how you'd look at it later. Instead, there might be something about money, but it might be some complicated apotelisma or something from the application of the moon. And then if you really want to know about money, you look at the lot. Right. So. Whereas Rhetorius does have that approach of looking at the ruler of the places, mm -hmm. but it's partially because it may be because he has access to this other tradition of interpreting the houses differently from this earlier textual source, which I suspect is the one attributed to Hermes, whereas Firmicus has access to this other source, which is either Asclepius or Nechepso and Pedasiris, that's approaching things a bit differently than that. Yeah, it's it it's it's unusual because in, in his equal house system, you know, he will say that the fourth is, you know, indicates the family and real estate. But there's no place where he says, all right, let's talk about the father and look at the fourth and its lord. And the son is a general significator. He doesn't do that. Yeah, there might be indications for the father in many other places of the chart. But then you look at the lot. Portional, right. Yeah. No, I think you're, what you're picking up is right. Because that, that paper by Andreas Winkler of those demotic horoscopes that were just unearthed in a uh, excavation, I think as recently as like 2021, that show that paradigm is it, it calculates the degree of the ascendant exactly, but then it has these lots to calculate where the traditional house topics fall, mm. um, especially for the the names of the houses, which are like you know good spirit, bad spirit, good fortune, bad fortune, um, life, death, and so on and so forth. And his speculation, which I'm not sure if it's true, was he thought because this is so highly specific that this was the earlier and exact way of calculating those house topics originally was through lots, because then he mm. saw the derivation of the house topics through the the signs relative to the ascendant as being a simplification of that model. And I don't know if that's true because we know in other authors that they use both together at the same time, both lots as well as house topics derived from the ascendant. So it could be that these horoscopes are also doing it at the same time. But it was an interesting thing in terms of the earlier part of the tradition that things may not always have been the same as how they became later on. Yeah. Yeah. There could have been a weaving of several different streams of thought and practice that. Um have been obscured. Yeah. And, well, and what's cool about that conceptually and philosophically is just whoever developed the concept of lots, that draws astrology much more closely into the practice of divination or other forms of divination because it adds that chance-like component much more into nativities by having lots which just move around the chart constantly in every which way. And then suddenly you freeze the chart or the sky at the moment of birth and you say these are where the topics are, 
um, and it creates an even more chance-like or more fortune-dependent mm. chart than just deriving things from the ascendant or, or what have you? Oh, then if you just focus on or, or focus on the method of projecting from the ascendant. Yeah, I guess yeah, I was just thinking of how. No, but that's interesting because it's because you're right. At all moments, all of the relationships of all of the places and planets are forming lots. Right. Um, and they're constantly moving around in a, a swarm almost. Yeah, well, yeah. and also because we have to remember like the other, well, we have to remember that in all forms of divination, there's this element of chance. And that's yeah. the very conceptual or philosophical basis is that you shuffle up the cards or you throw the dice or you have some random element of chance that's outside of the control of the person doing the divination. And then you just freeze things at that moment when the question is asked. And then whatever the arrangement is of the random or chance-like thing, even though it appears to be random or chance-like, the assumption is that fate is working through chance and fortune to exactly tell you what the answer is at that moment in time. But what the answer in the birth chart or the question that's being asked is, what is this person's life going to be like, or what is it going to be about? Yeah. Yeah. So the lots are just the attempt to import that component of chance even more than mm. it already is mm. Uh, mm. in the arrangement of the planets. Um, all right. Other topics, fixed stars is like a major thing that you deal with in this book. It is. It's a, it's a, tr a bit of a troubling topic because he's dealing in some cases with another kind of Zodiac with some mm. different animals in it. It's not clear always he's using the right measurements. He does identify some important fixed stars and he's, and he, he says he's, um, uh, he goes through delineations of every degree of the zodiac when it's on the ascendant. So that, that I think is also related to what he calls he calls the barbarous sphere. And the barbarous sphere in antiquity, if you said something was barbarous, uh, you meant one of two things. You either meant the Persians. Uh, that goes back to Greek. Um, that that was a common name for the Persians. Or you just meant, you know, people outside the empire. So he's telling us that he's translated this book, um, or at least part of a book called The Barbarous Sphere. And it's got stars that co-rise with certain constellations. That That's the stuff that Manilius also translated. Um, delineations for each rising degree. But it's probably in some other, maybe sidereal zodiac. So, um, although mentioning I, that you you point out he uses tropical positions pretty consistently, right? Um, in some cases, it's hard to say. Okay, he 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 doesn't it doesn't seem to care about precession. So, hmm. um, it doesn't seem like he processes any. Uh, well, no, he doesn't because he he's reporting the same values for some star. Um, for some star locations as Manilius. Right. So and he hasn't updated the tables. Yeah. So, and he's writing several centuries later. So he's not, he, he doesn't pay any attention to procession. 
And I thought I would try to unify all of the parts of the books, raise all of the fixed stars, and I would have a and I would and I would use an astrology program to get a sky map to see, you know, if this star was rising with this constellation, what year would it have to be for also this one to rise? And I thought, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> it, it didn't seem worth it. And sometimes since you can't trust necessarily his numbers and you don't know where he's getting his numbers from uh the fixed star part is less um um rewarding um except i will say this he does identify a number of eminent fixed stars which are not on the usual lists mm-hmm. So there's a usual list of 30 stars that we get from uh, Anonymous of 379, and uh, there's a Persian version of the list um, where if if these stars are rising at your birth or the moon is on them, there's rules, uh, the native will be eminent. He adds some. Some I can't identify, but some I can, and he adds them. And so that that could add to our lore okay that's exciting um so yeah lots of fixed star stuff lots of delineations like that um i don't i know he he associates the beginning of aries with the spring equinox i think or in like book two or something which i think implies that some of his zodiac might be tropical but then elsewhere he's using sidereal considerations so um i know so it's hard because he's sometimes just copying things over I know sometimes I noticed in your footnotes that occasionally like it seems like Firmicus would make mistakes or would transpose things when he's copying certain things over it seemed like right uh there yeah there were there were some errors you mean in numbers like in the numbers he would use uh, maybe yeah sometimes in numbers but other times like I know there's like a delineation the other day where it was like Jupiter and Mars were sort of inverted or something like that um, or maybe elsewhere, it was in the lot calculations where you noticed that there was a discrepancy about which planet was supposed to be measured from which, and just different different things like that. Although I guess we don't know sometimes if that's just issues in the manuscript tradition. Yeah, it depends. Um, I think there probably are a couple places where it's obvious the text is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Um, I can't think of one uh, immediately offhand, but but it would be like, or or if uh, he's talk going through permutations of, you know, certain planets in combination by day and by night, maybe the text has two of them with by day in a row, and that's obviously wrong. So, um, but but largely, I mean, it's amazing that. For for something this big, which is co- with, with language as complicated, um, that it's come to us in such an amazing form. Right. There was a lot of manuscripts of the text that survived? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It became very popular in the Middle Ages, at least among some people. Not, right. not, not so much among practicing astrologers, I think, until later. Hmm. Like, I don't, you don't see references to it by Bonatti right you know yeah you don't it's like it doesn't really become popular until I think it's one of the earlier texts that was printed after the printing press was um, Mm. invented in like the Mm. late 15th century 
Firmicus was printed at some point, and then it becomes proliferated around Europe, and it has great influence on subsequent like Renaissance and early modern mm -hmm. astrologers. And I know like Firmicus is one of the sources that Lily cites, for example. Yeah. So he was always around manuscripts somewhere, but didn't really become really popular until very late. Well, and, and part of it is just it's so striking how he's literally it's one of the last major textbooks in the Roman in Rome, let's say, as literally like astrology is on the way out, because I've been researching, like I said, some of the legal codes recently. And like within a decade or a few decades of Firmicus writing this book, literally astrology, just not just astrology became illegal, but consultations teaching it. And there was even a law that astrologers had to burn their books within mm. a few decades of Firmicus writing this. So it's like, it, it gets to be both the first really major Latin textbook in astrology, but also he's writing it when astrology is going to go into a downturn for several centuries, mm -hmm. at least at least in that part of, of Europe and in, in like Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And then kind of disappears for all intents and purposes compared with everything else disappears until very late. Uh, Firmicus's text. Yeah. 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 Well, well that, yeah. And that's, what's so striking. And then, and then it's like, we also have a downturn of astrology and Greek sources and eventually even in Egypt, but then eventually we have this great flourishing of astrology um, in the eighth and ninth centuries with the astrologers who are speaking and writing in Arabic and they revive some of the earlier traditions from the Greek and Persian authors, but then they're the ones like that's the system that then gets transmitted back to Europe when the Latin translation movement happens in the 12th century and they sort of become the source of that astrology, I guess, more so than Firmicus. Right. Yeah, it would be nice to know, um, you know, what if what if his book had become real popular and well, especially if his source texts hadn't disappeared, too. But if, you know, all of this stuff about the moon, for example, all of these special combinations of uh, lunar applications and separations and what that means for the native, um, that's a whole body of moon lore that could have been used and developed you know, for centuries. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we have it back now. And I think your translation feels like a really needed and necessary thing in order to finally help us understand Firmicus better than it had been understood up to this point. And I think it's going to become one of those like texts that everybody has to have in their in their library because of the really important foundational role it plays and because of all those sources that Firmicus draws on that are just so so early and how extensive it goes into the delineations and things like that? Well, I hope so. And I, I hope so. I mean, partly I hope so for my sake, <laughs> but uh, but especially for his sake, because he deserves it. Hmm. Um, I really got to appreciate him in a whole new way um, when I translated this. And his work deserves to be uh, studied and made part of uh, curricula and, um, yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Well, thanks a lot for translating. And thanks, especially for my personal request of like translating it. I appreciate, um, even though I know this was a huge task, just maybe even just as huge as Firmicus writing it, um, but it's a huge contribution to the tradition. So, thanks for doing that. What else are you working on, or what do you have coming up in the future now that you've gotten this huge uh, tome out of the way? 
Well, my natal course is officially underway, and we might have a new cohort starting maybe this fall. Um, I am doing a complete rewrite and retranslation of Banati. Um, and I'm also working on some mundane books. There will be, I think, a series of mundane books that I have to do all at once. And I think I might have to release them at once. That'll be a couple of years from now. Some Abu Mishar, some Saul, uh, a guy named Abu Kamash, and um, other things. Nice. That sounds amazing. Um, okay, cool. And what's your website where people can find out more information? That is bendykes.com. And you can buy all of my books on Amazon. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. 
You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.